I want to uh, turn to Luke chapter 4, and if you have, if you have the ESV version of Luke 4, it'll be easier just because I'm reading from that. Um, but if you could look, go to Luke chapter 4 and verse 14, and we're going to begin there, and we'll read uh, verse 14 onwards. And uh, I just want to share a few thoughts this morning. It's not going to be, uh, your, I guess, the typical expository message, if that's okay. But I just feel like God has given me some prophetic things uh, for your church. I'm humbled. Uh, I'm humbled to, to, to know that God has dropped some things into my heart for you. And it's like he, he gives gifts to give gifts. And I just i am so thrilled. But Luke chapter 4, verse 14 and I love what Ginny brought this morning, that uh, there's, there's disturbances sometimes. And in Luke 4, we read of one of those disturbances. When Jesus, in verse 14, returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What a poignant moment that must have been. And I can just see Jesus pausing, and he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And then they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill in which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Lord Jesus, we read of... You're happening in the synagogue. And we're amazed at the truth of your words. We're amazed at what you said. And later what you did. 
And Father, this morning I just want to ask you by your spirit, would you come and would you impart to this people the truth of your word? Lord, as you do bring disturbance to the atmosphere around us, Lord Jesus, pray right now, Lord, would you help me in this moment just to, uh, just to reflect your goodness and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, Jesus uh, is just such an amazing, amazing figure in this, in this true account. And he returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, having just gone a few rounds with the enemy. And he was led by the Spirit into the desert. And without reading that entire passage, Jesus goes through an amazing time of temptation and stands on the Word of God and proclaims the Word of God in a time of dryness, 40 days and 40 nights without eating and drinking, and battles, standing on the Word of God, being completely obedient to what his Father had placed in his heart, knowing in some sense his destiny as he battles and he comes through. And his fullness is on full display as he walks out of the desert. He came out of the desert in the fullness of the Spirit. And I just believe this morning that as we read about Jesus coming into the synagogue, he's experienced the fullness of the Spirit because he's been completely obedient to that which his Father had laid on his heart. And that he, in the midst of the desert, found his strength in God and in his word. And then proclaimed the truth. See, Jesus is like a tree planted in the desert. In Psalm 1, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and His leaf does not wither. In all that He does, He prospers. So it is with the man or the woman that, that rests in God and finds their strength in the desert as their roots go deep into the streams that only God can give. And Jesus is that man. And Jesus encourages us to do the same. He encourages us as we walk through the desert of life to find ourselves drilling deep for His truth and His sustenance and His refreshing in the midst of it. I don't think it's any small thing that as Jesus comes out of the desert that He wants to remind us of the importance of obedience in the face of of circumstances that would betray God's word, he says, I want you to be obedient. I want you to walk this out. If you're with us on Friday night, you got a glimpse into some of that, into our own lives. And though not always perfect and not always being completely true, we discovered, Barb and I, in walking this out over these past 30 or so years, that God, even at the most dry of times, should we rely on be obedient that we come out in the fullness of His Spirit? And some of you are going through those times. And the Lord would want you this morning to continue to
to trust in his word, to be completely obedient to the things he has laid before you. Some people talk about the desert experience and it's, it's, sometimes it's an analogy and it's very popular in Christian writing today to talk about the desert experience. But I just felt like earlier this year when actually going through a bit of a, a time where I was just struggling a little bit with, it's like, Father, where's your presence? And we sang this morning, we're waiting here for you. It's like, where's your presence? And yet I will trust you. I trust you. And in that, Just understanding that it was incumbent upon me to continue to be obedient to him. You know, we live in the desert, folks. This is the reality. We're aliens and strangers on this earth. And we flourish in the desert. We flourish as our roots go deep. We flourish as Jesus flourished, as he came out of the desert. He was able to preach that day with an authority that was irresistible in his nature. And should it be any different with us? Should it be any different with us as we walk through the desert of life, as we dig deep, as our roots go deep, should it be any different with us? that we walk in the fullness of the Spirit as we're completely obedient to Him. And yes, He gives us those times of refreshing. But our leaves should not wither in the desert because our roots go deep. I get so thrilled oftentimes when I hear of the stories of many who go through extreme trial, extreme extreme heat, and yet it's so evident that their leaves are still green. And that is a testimony. Fullness is transformed into power through testing. The critical moment in life for us, for us all, is when God's word is broken into our hearts and we obey. When we obey him, it's critical. It's reflected in our daily living. There are really no shortcuts to this. And we have watershed moments for sure. We have times of refreshing for sure. But it's in obedience, in daily living. It says in Acts 5.32, And we are witnesses to these things, and so the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him, He gives us His Holy Spirit as we are obedient to Him. It's a bit of a preamble. He taught in their synagogues. I just love the fact that I'm in a synagogue. I just think it's amazing. I just think there's a prophetic irony to that somehow. And actually, I just feel like there's, this is almost like an anniversary today. There's, something to celebrate today of great accomplishment Jesus taught in the synagogues he came to Nazareth and he went on as his custom to read he stood up now in the synagogue and you're probably aware of this but in the synagogue the service of the synagogue was fairly structured and set 
And the first thing that was done after they assembled was they would read the Shema. And it's Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 to 9. And so this is what they would have read. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So they would declare the truth of God being with them and His greatness. It would be followed by various prayers and then there would be a reading from the Torah and then a reading from the prophets followed by an exposition that ties the readings together. And so Jesus stands up, takes the scroll and very intentionally unrolls it and declares through reading a portion of Isaiah 61 that he's the fulfillment of that. He basically says that he himself is the one who is going to cause the Shema, which they've just read, to be actually made into promise fulfilled. Jesus has a purpose and an intention and he goes on and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's a year that he's referring to as the year of Jubilee. I just love, this is called Jubilee Center. Centrality of the gospel is Jesus in what he says. It's a message for an audience, for the poor. Those who recognize that their resources, psychologically, economically, and socially, they fall desperately short to deal with the realities of life. So in defining the poor, Jesus is addressing the poor here. Those who recognize that their resources, whatever they might be, are not adequate to meet the demands of everyday life. It's not just those who don't have enough money and must live on the street. It's not... Let's not marginalize the the definition. The poor are those that don't have the resources. They're the humble that understand that they don't have it. But it is the humble that God will exalt. The poor in this sense are open to God because they recognize their own need for something bigger than themselves. It says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 that God has written eternity in our hearts. And it's when we're at the end of ourselves that we understand there must be something more. There must be something bigger than ourselves out there. And Jesus says that He is that way. He is the life, the truth. Because our culture is caught up in pursuing things that terminate on themselves. Our culture is caught up in the pursuit of self and and trying trying to better ourselves. We try to better ourselves by all manner of things. 
I don't need to go into a whole lot of definition there, but it is true. And if, and if we're not trying to find it in ourselves, we're trying to find it in others. We're trying to find our sense of fulfillment in, in others. It could be something as near and dear as our families. It might be, it might be in other people that we're codependent with and that we find our, we find our sense of fulfillment or try to at least in others. And it might be in religion. It might be in some way of trying to balance the scales with a God who can be appeased by our good works. The trick's on us because there's no scales. There are no scales. There are no scales to balance. We can't balance the scales that don't exist. And it's to those who recognize their limitation that Jesus proclaims release. He proclaims recovery of sight and freedom from oppression. Back in the early 70s, there was a writer, his name was Alvin Toffler, and some of you may know who that was. He wrote a book called Future Shock. And it was very prophetic, actually. And he wrote, and I quote, Future shock is the shattering stress and disorientation that we induce in individuals by subjecting them to too much change in too short a time. And he basically was prophesying today's day and age. We live in a society that's disoriented. A society that's lost its way. Where up is down and right is wrong. Yet Jesus is saying that in this year of Jubilee, that he writes the wrongs. That he is the one that comes with a message of freedom, a message that releases in the power of the Spirit. He will set things right. You see, the year of Jubilee, as it was proclaimed and as is written in the Scriptures, actually wasn't really practiced by the Jews. It wasn't practiced as it was intended. In the 50th year, your debts would be forgiven. You'd be given back your land and all the things would be made right. It sounded great on paper. But as a society, they felt woefully short. And Jesus is saying, now is the time. I'm proclaiming that this is the year of Jubilee. That I am coming to do that which was impossible before. Because I've written the law on your hearts. It's written on your heart. Jesus accomplishes this. Jesus is not just the prophet who would say of the great things that would come, but he's the Messiah that makes it possible, and indeed it is possible. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and he said, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus by rolling up the scroll and sitting down. It's a prophetic action of what he would do on the cross. It is finished. He sat down. He's like, there's nothing more to say. It's done. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 of Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power and making purifications for sins He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus sat down in a prophetic action saying, I have come 
and I will purify. I will release. I will give sight to the blind. I will relieve the oppression that you're under. And all spoke well of him, marveled at the gracious words that come out of his mouth. Is not this Joseph's son? Which attitude do we hold when we hear Jesus and the words of his grace? Do we revel in them and do we live in them? Or do we as the Pharisees all of a sudden say, Hey, wait a minute, isn't that just Joseph's son? Do we want to bring it back down to earth, as it were? They were skeptical. It's not a time for us to be skeptical. As we've heard this morning, we fully believe that God is about to deluge us. He's about to interrupt us. He's about to bring a new revelation, I believe, of His grace and His mercy to the world. And when things seem darkest, that's when the rain comes. When the clouds have gathered overhead, it's when the rain comes. We, are we going to revert to an attitude of skepticism about the current state of affairs? Realizing that the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. I love it in chapter 3 of Luke. It says, in the lineage of Jesus, Jesus, the son of Joseph. And in brackets, he can almost miss it. It says, as was supposed. Jesus was born of a virgin. He interrupted the line of sin. He's the second Adam who comes and sets us free and breaks the line of sin. The only one. Inasmuch as Adam's sin brought death to the entire planet, Jesus, as the second Adam, brings life and life to the full. Jesus goes on and he he calls it what it is. He knows their hearts. He knows the Pharisees' hearts. He knows the cynicism and the skepticism. And he refers to Elijah and Elisha. And he basically makes a comparison. He says, you know what? As apostate as that nation was then, it's kind of like that here in this room now. And inasmuch as nothing could be done in the nation, I went to the Gentiles, the widow. He ministered to the widow And there were miracles that took place, raising a boy from the dead. And then Naaman, through Elisha, a Gentile, was healed. And at that, they wanted to throw him off a cliff, it says. Because he was asking them, really, would you like to look into the mirror? And today, here we are in Sheffield, and Jesus is asking us similar questions. And he's asking us, are we willing to, as it were, choose to not be as the Pharisees? And choose to respond to his his statement of authority? Are we willing to begin with the house of the Lord, as it were, to understand that we have a responsibility to be transparent and vulnerable before a living God? So that our response is the direct opposite of what he experienced that day. Because, you see, Jesus is wanting to do a great thing in Sheffield. He's going to do an amazing, amazing work in this city. 
And we have to assume that biblical truth, the truth that Jesus proclaims, we have to assume that it's flying in the face of the culture that distorts the true reality of the kingdom of God. We need reshaping, we need renewing, we need reviving, and that's what Jesus is about. Our culture serves an unholy trinity. Our culture serves science, which is bread technology, and which in itself causes us to be very capitalistic in the way that we do things. And Jesus is saying, would you choose a better way? Would you choose my way? The way of the Spirit. He instructs us on how to respond to it. And it's not good enough for us to just have good teaching and good preaching. We must go further than that. The words that Jesus proclaimed that day went further. They cut to the heart. They exhort. They encourage. They change cultures. Change lives. Change cultures. Change lives. Change societies. Our theology must breathe. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. But oftentimes I get, I get a little concerned when I peruse the web and I'm, I'm listening to sermons and I'm reading about the importance of preparing messages and, and we, we make it such a complex thing sometimes. But I'm wondering sometimes if we miss it. Our theology must breathe. The things that we teach must penetrate hearts. We must move to the heart to take the things that we say and the things that we proclaim. They must go to the heart. That changes a society when individuals are changed. The nature of Jesus' mission is what all of this has to do with, actually. The church's call, your call as the church in Sheffield is to be an extension of Jesus' mission to this city. And when Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, the natural extension of that, because His Spirit has been poured out, because He's been glorified, His Spirit is on you to do that which He proclaimed. Do you believe that? It's true. It's true. It's to take it outside the walls of this building. It's to take it outside of the walls of your home. It's to take it to this city. It's to take it to this nation and to the nations. I just think it's wonderful. This is a big city. It's bigger than Fredericton. We're 65, 70,000. We're a small town compared to this. It's like I'm heartened to know that that you want to plant other churches in this city. There should be many churches like this in this city. A life's work is in this city. I'm not saying you shouldn't plant churches in other cities, but you've got a pretty good one here to flex your muscle. Some of you are going to be planting churches in this city. Heeding this word today knowing that the Spirit of the Lord is upon you to do likewise. See, Jesus has resourced us to do as He did. He backs up His words with action later in the same chapter. What's He doing? You find Jesus casting out demons and healing the sick and expressing Himself 
in his action. And Jesus is saying, that same anointing is upon you. That same anointing is upon you to release captives from their oppression. That's the heart of the gospel. That is what we're about. See, the nature of this great salvation is release. And sometimes we, we compartmentalize salvation to the point where it's the matter of saying a prayer and counting souls. But it's much more than that. It's release from all debts. It's a release where the books are white clean. It's a release where the legal obligations that are against us are removed and we're able to see things in a new way. And folks, Jesus is calling you to be a people, to be a releasing people. To being a people who fix their eyes on Him know His truth, and go out and proclaim it. I just felt, in fact, over this last while that of this transition period that you people are under right now, and walking through the city here and in Eastbourne earlier this week, I kept having my attention drawn to buildings that were under construction, And there were scaffolding and tarpaulins up and people were working. They were still using the buildings, the people who lived there. And there were businesses and such. But I just felt like that's the way it is right now with you. Is that the Lord has scaffolding and, spiritually speaking, tarpaulins up. And there's renovation going on. And there's a rebranding and there's a, there's a, there's a re-identification of what it is that you are about. And he is going to release you into a new thing. Mark, uh, the first day we arrived here on Monday, we walked up the street and Mark said, oh, the, the church building's down the street. You wouldn't, you wouldn't really know it's there because it's hidden. And I just felt like something jumped in my spirit. It's like, the time of being hidden will be, will be done with. That this church, you, and those that you will produce from you, and the ones that they will produce from themselves, shall not be hidden. I just think it's an amazing, amazing thing that God has such a program of restoration underway right now. But I just feel that the Lord wants to tell you that that time of restoration is coming to a close. And that He is going to release you and rebrand you. It's going to look different. It's going to feel different. But it is going to be true to His Word. And you can take confidence in that. Last night we met with the leadership and we had a wonderful time with your leadership. And I just came away with the sense that this church is in such good hands. Jesus is at the center of the desire that your leadership holds. It's so amazing. And I felt last night, and I feel again this morning, just to say that chapter one is over. You see, I actually wrote some of these thoughts down because I just felt prophetically 
there were a few things that you need to know. You see that the Lord is writing a sweeping saga across the earth. And I just had this, this picture of, of our Father being the best author going. And our Father can be relied on to be that author that writes the greatest of adventures. And he's a prolific writer of great stories reflected in the tens of tens of thousands of unique volumes written over the centuries. Like the best of authors, he writes in a style that pulls you into the story. And unlike a novel that you would read off the bookshelf, you're pulled into the story literally. In Sheffield Church, you're being pulled into and have been pulled into this story that is the story of this church. And it's being written by an author that can be relied upon to give you the best experience possible, the most unique of adventures. You're in the story. Have you ever seen those books called Choose Your Own Adventure? You know what I'm talking about? They're very popular in our schools. And at the end of the chapter, you can decide to, oh, for this adventure, turn to page 52. And for that adventure, you know, you can jump off. It's, it, there's, there's a freedom in the grace of God in the way that he writes a story that he even gives you some choice. But City Church Sheffield, chapter 1 of this amazing story is coming to a close. In fact, it's like today is the end of chapter 1. And it's the beginning of chapter 2. In chapter 1, you see, over these years, the setting has been introduced. It's been established. Some of the characters have been made their way onto the pages. Some of the plot lines have started. But I just feel to tell you that the Holy Spirit would say to you that chapter 2 commences today. That this is chapter 2. The story is about to pick up. And as a good novel of intrigue or adventure, once you get through chapter 1, things tend to, if it's well done, they're going to pick up and you're going to find plot twists and turns, new characters added. And the protagonist is clearly, clearly identified. And the protagonist of your story is Jesus himself. He's the hero of the story. But he's got you with him. The story, the story revolves around him and his cast. I just feel like over these next months and years, chapter 2 is going to be an exciting, exciting place to be. And yes, there will be conflict, because any good story has to have it. But our God, but our God, but our God in the conflict. And nothing will thwart his plan, for any author knows where he's going. Any author knows where he wants to go, and our Father knows where he's going with your story. Isn't it amazing? And who knows what chapter 3 will bring? Who knows?
but we have the best author. And some of you are going to be swept up into the story in ways that you never thought possible. I just feel like corporately there's a, there's a sense here of, of you being involved in ways that you never thought possible. And Paul goes into, talks about, you know, some of you feel like you might have a bit part to play and he gives the analogy of the human body and so on. But some of you, you may have thought you've had a bit part to play, but totally necessary to the plot line, totally necessary to how it's going to play out. I just want to take a moment. If we can have the worship team come, I just feel like we need to worship. I just feel like this is one of those moments to ask you that question, do you want to be in this story? Do you want to walk this storyline out? It's going to be an amazing story. It is an amazing story. It is going where you've never thought possible. Why don't we stand? I'd love to pray for you. Is that okay? I just think we need to respond this morning to the call of Jesus to be those that go with the Spirit of the, of the Lord, anointing them to release the captives, to set the oppressed free, to give sight to the blind, to know that you have been given this same anointing. And as we're obedient to His Word in thick and thin, that He has great things in store for you. See, it's a very simple word this morning. But I just feel like this is a moment where you as city church say, yeah, you know what, I want to be swept up into this great adventure. So let's pray.